0: travelers, and welcome to the Way of the Showman, where we view the world through the lens of showmanship. I am Captain Frodo, and as always, I will be your gracious host and guide along the way. Now, the autumn is uh, beginning to show itself uh, here in Norway. It's uh, pouring with rain, and or uh, <laughs> cloudy, and it's uh, lovely to See the expanding sea outside here, and we're heading into the autumn. And it feels to me like the Christmas season and autumn here is still. I just did the this weekend. I weekend past, a few weekends past. I did. Um, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be a couple of weekends past. But um, I did a, the last of the gigs that were supposed to have happened during. The Christmas end of Christmas season last year, but then the Omicron came and it uh, it <laughs> moved it. They decided to move it uh, until now into um, middle of September. So they decided they were done with uh, these short uh, step uh, movements forward with the gigs and are ready to just. Uh, move it into the future and I feel like we're moving into another future here now when I went to Italy earlier this year to go to the Masters of Magic conventions and uh, convention, and did some shows there uh, Italy still you have to have masks inside and I see from America that there's still a lot of masks and still a lot of restrictions here in Norway it's pretty much like Corona never happened people test but if you get sick or whatever but it's yeah, it feels like we've stepped beyond that. And that was fine with me because I was beginning to lose interest in it. So hopefully it'll go that way for everybody. Anyway, last week we um, explored uh, transforming attention into interest. And uh, a lot of the time naming these things makes it really valuable, particularly then it's for me. It's valuable when I take on a role as a co-creator or a director or so, when I'm working with people on their uh, projects. Then it really helps to have language for this sort of stuff that people always they think about it. Or oh, you know, when it's, it's nothing that I'm going to say about it. If you're an experienced performer, uh, then there's nothing I'm going to say that's going to just blow your mind and go, "Oh, I never thought of this." Uh, but putting a name on it and then just using that that means that you can be a little bit more systematic in the use of it or when you have an idea you can immediately um place that into a into a category you go ah that's why that's uh, that's good or oh, why that's why that extra line that i added today felt really good and you go oh, i recognize this pattern so becoming a master or being good at something is to be able to expand the types of patterns that you see in what you do and um not everything is completely new each time. You still have to lead the audience right into it uh, each time, each act. And you can look at that under different aspects. So last time, maybe it got a little bit abstract. But uh, today I'm going to try to make it more concrete by applying that to... Uh, my tennis racket act just look through it and see if we can find some of those things from last time I won't go through in detail too much what I talked about because you can just go back and listen to it and then we will talk about the transformation of time what we find in the end of the showman's manifesto as uh, the transformation of time into showtime so without further ado let's uh, get cracking and get into the next leg along the way of the showman (laughs) Transforming time into showtime. But first my tennis act as an example of the stages of transforming attention into interest. So the following then becomes the sort of blow-by-blow description of my tennis racket act and showing how I invite the audience into the game and transition their attention into interest and uh, if you haven't seen it or haven't got that in your mind, you can Google Captain Furdo's tennis, and uh, you will find it. Captain Furdo's tennis racket challenge, or you can find a full act from Carnival Cinema, or you can find it from the TED conference at the Sydney Opera House uh, very easily. And I'll should I should post a link. Sometimes I say that I will post a link, but then I forget. But uh, one has to take a little bit of responsibility for one's own research. <laughs> Uh, that's at least my excuse for um, being uh, overworked. This is a relatively small operation after all. Now, it starts. This is kind of uh, keeping it in mind that it's the my archetypal presentation of my Tennis Racket Act is from the 12 years of working together with uh, Brett Haylock and uh, the... Um, Uh, Las Verrées crew, the La Clique show that I was in for 12 years. So uh, when I say here that the ringmaster dressed in a pinstriped suit and stylish hat, uh, when he announces me, that is actually Brett Haylock right there doing it. Please welcome to the center stage, the incredible rubber man, Captain Frodo, and I come running out in a pair of tiny shorts, no shirt, and knee-high socks with a ridiculous hairdo held in place by a white headband carrying two tennis rackets with no strings, big smile plastered on my face, and even my running style and gesticulation and lostness is inviting and exaggerated. Like, what's going on here? A whole lot is going on, but I'm running in as a question and as a yeah <laughs> and as an invitation to want to know more. And as soon as I hit the stage I shout really loudly, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen and I shout it in such a way that I elicit a responsive cheer and I make sure that I'm demanding a response and given my enthusiasm this really comes across as a sort of unreasonable demand at that point but rather as an invitation, a safe invitation to effortlessly participate. I'm not asking you to come up just to respond to that. I sometimes go, are you feeling good? Are you having a good time? Just to get three yeses as a fortune teller. Once yeses in their expanding of uh, their fortunes that they're telling, that uh, should be edited out, but probably won't be. It doesn't really matter. How strong the audience response is to me going? I feeling good, and like when I normally I just say good evening, ladies and gentlemen, screaming that, and then they get that enough. But if that doesn't work, I can make make it more. But it's enough that they have some kind of response because it is just a tiny first part in a long process of making them lean in. And I know that I have so much more to give them, and so much so many more points of um, access for them to participate. So but this is also in all its strange expression and like all of the stuff that i do with the running in and all this this is an a grab of their attention and i say my name is captain frodo and 46 years ago i was born from normal parents but look at me now what the crap happened here um Anyway, and this gets a giggle. Um, but I was born with a rare genetic affliction that allows me to bend, contort, and even dislocate certain parts of my anatomy into rude and amusing shapes. And I say this with building enthusiasm and excitement and finish up with the first of many celebratory confetti throws. And by this stage, they've giggled, ogled me, tall, lanky, almost naked, decidedly odd, but absolutely friendly and confident. And, and um unscary i'm not scary to them or whatever whatever that there's probably a better way to say that but by this stage i've usually already built the kind of modicum of trust and there's a lot of insinuations about what will happen contortion and the way that it will happen enthusiastically and comically so then i make a promise i am now going to attempt to squeeze my entire muscular body I pause, they don't react and just before they make any kind of reaction I say thank you for no response and as if I had expected them to cheer my muscular body, this makes them laugh upon which I drizzle confetti seductively over my chest triggering another good hearted (laughs) giggle and a bit of spread laughter. And the drizzle of confetti of myself is an unusual way of using confetti. It's still a confetti celebration, but it has developed and changed, which implicitly promises a pleasant evolution. Stuff that you saw before is going to be transformed. And as we're moving along, bringing back ideas or gags in developed forms is subtle aspects of structure. And as I drizzle confetti of my all- underwhelming uh, chest musculature, musculature <laughs> the single moment of attention grabbing of the first celebratory confetti throw after my um, introduction, which is a perfect picture of how one expects confetti to be used, but it reappears in their subconscious no longer as a single moment, but as a part of a duration of a developing journey they don't understand any of this and uh, this is all me when i think about what it actually does and reflecting on it in interest and attention and all these things but then as i know those you start to learn the function of why you do something not just that it works but possibly reasons for why it works and can then transform um, take, uh, bring with me that knowledge to when I'm working on other acts, whether they are my own or other people's. So. Rightly, you could argue that this sequence and the promise doesn't fully emerge until I do confetti. uh, Of This is just a promise of uh, evolution and a developing journey, that that doesn't happen in relation to the confetti until confetti throw number three, which comes when I stumble back to the microphone after falling off the stage. And now the confetti is a kind of band-aid on a mistake turned good, uh, which is then uh, the third one of the confetti throws uh, of that development but it's still, I think, already by the second one that it's so different than the first being not uh, thrown up in the air in celebration but drizzled over the body. It uh, still promises an evolution and there's a subtle promise of pleasant developments ahead already in the second throw. And then, comes the promise for real bold and subtle at all like I'm going to squeeze myself through the head of these rackets and it goes a little something like this I jump into action and I start flipping and flopping and the action has begun and in making a promise I'm going to get through these rackets I give the audience a proper handle to hold on to a strong structural promise they're now thinking Will he be able to? Will he fail? Will it be embarrassing for him or for us? It's also just now they have clarity as to what is going on with this weird guy. This is a hook. It's a promise that what follows is something difficult and challenging and so much so that it could fail. I'm implying that it might turn out to be impossible with the way that I, I behave because, oh man, is it going to? It's going to be, I'm going to attempt to squeeze myself <laughs> through these things so um, it might turn out to be impossible. This is a key component of any drama or any story. Can the hero achieve the impossible? Stick around and you'll find out. So, running out in a tiny pair of shorts and socks, looking decidedly ridiculous, topped by screaming, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, that's me kind of exploding a paper bag. But I'm also egging them into a cheer which is an easy participatory act i go at it with 100 percent conviction and enthusiasm making it all but impossible to not step into the game that i'm setting up i'm making an invitation to play and the game is you just have to sit there and let me do my thing and it'll be funny and weird in a good way and it is supremely rare that the majority doesn't all just cheer as one group when I invite it. And I aim to, well, uh, given that I have their attention, I can't run in and do that on the street. But when I'm running into a show where there is an audience already sitting there in, in anticipation, then then they do that. Or else, of course, the strategy has got to be different. But we're just using this as, as an example and not making a complete a complete generalization of this. So I aim to make them think from the very second that I go on that they can trust that I will lead them and that I will not push them over the edge of making them uncomfortable, at least not too uncomfortable. So when I tell them, that I was born different, I mentioned contortion and even dislocation. My character and charisma hopefully makes them think or they're probably it's more like a feeling or whatever It's like I go I'm going to squeeze my body and even dislocate my body anatomy into rude and amusing shapes. They might be thinking something like a dislocation. I don't want to see that. But then again, this guy seems funny. And even though he seems strange, his confidence and enthusiasm makes me trust him. This won't become awkward. Okay, I guess I could trust him enough to not get up and run away just yet. So before this thought, feeling, vibe has passed through them, I'm already on to the next thing, carrying them along with me. With my first silly but highly physical and funny attempts at getting my arms and head through the first racket, so that whole first section is supposed to sort of ease them into me as a person, um, to cause some intrigue as to who I am and what I'm about to do, my character and which is my character and my material. I'm going. I've got the rackets with me. It's me, my character, is how I behave, how I talk, the words that I choose, my intonation, and my whole general persona. So that's the what. But they're meeting there, my character and my material. So when I'm promised to squeeze through my body, I squeeze my body through the head of the rackets, then their attention has hopefully modulated into interest in me and my peculiar anatomy and the outrageous thing that i intend to do and they should now be leaning in and i'm getting them to lean in and i'm getting these elements of structure they're feeling the structure of the act. okay i've given them a promise of what's going to happen in the end so when it turns out that this sort of chaotic slapstick bonanza where everything from the microphone stand the microphone and the lead to my headband and shoes get in the way of me achieving my goal of getting through the tennis rackets then i have further sunk my hooks into them and they have now a vested interest in seeing what happens. Can this weirdo do it and they're now invested in the unfolding of this, and their repetitious movement—like uh, not movement, involvement—with with cheering and laughter, and their guts knotting in anticipation of my dislocation, and I fall off the stage, and they sort of go, "Oh man, this character that's that we now like—it's um, the protagonist of a story here—that um, they now begin to feel like they're part of the performance." Because that's the thing, you can go out and be many different characters that are intriguing. If you just sort of manage to hook them in and you get emotionally involved, then you can get into all sorts of... You can have unlikable characters, like in Rumpa Stumpa, that New Zealand movie, was it? or Anyways, where there's um, the protagonist is a skinhead, like a, like a racist, neo-Nazi skinhead. But because he's the protagonist of the movie, you find yourself weirdly... Uh, pulled into it because you can't help but connect with the with the protagonist. So of course the protagonist um, of the act can be all sorts of dislikable or whatever but um, um, it's um, it's clear there that when when somebody comes out and you meet them and you meet what they're gonna do and you do all that then you you're starting to lean in because you want to know more about them and uh it's fun and you paid bought the tickets you already are there you already like vested your attention invested money and intention in this thing so as it comes towards you as long as you keep that going uh, i think that'll bring bring the house down it certainly does anyway that's a sort of um way to um it's not a structured way where I say this is equivalent to this and this is equivalent of that but you see how these three sort of ideas of um, attention modulating into the leaning in into them being participated how you can't really just say like everything like we mentioned last time anything uh, separating these things out it's sort of artificial because all this kind of happening at the same time but always being aware of when are you inviting them in when are you asking them to participate and when do they then fully not just participate in the actually shouting and all that but just feeling like they're part of it invested in the structure of it so then we're getting on to what's um, sort of new about uh, today or a new perspective. And it is how this sort of uh, kindled interest and um, how kindled interest and through the kindled interests, as in they're now not just paying attention, they're, they're, their interest is fully flourishing. They feel like they're participating in it and how this is then the emergence of the phenomenon of show, the last of the four things we're going to look at, which we're going to start in earnest next episode. But let's uh, go and see how this is reflected in the manifesto. So at the end of the showman's manifesto, uh, not the end of it, but uh, a section of it goes, Like the sun above, he attracts random bodies traveling through space. Like the sun above, He attracts random bodies travelling through space He being the showman Like the sun above, the showman attracts random bodies travelling through space Like planets, they gather orderly around him Like planets, they gather orderly around him And the gravity of the showman warps time and warps space The gravity of the showman warps time and warps space And it's this warping of time and space that we're gonna look at because this is how I believe we find how this modulation of grabbed attention into interest how that is pictured in the manifesto and it's pictured as the difference of merely being captured like a rogue planet caught by uh, caught into orbit by a star then that uh, showman warps uh, time and space for the spectator so that's picture of it. And the distinction between being captured by the gravity of the showman can easily be seen as pointing to having one's attention arrested by the crack of a whip or a pop of a paper bag. And the next line, it tells us that the planets gather orderly around them. This applies to rogue planets are forming a solar system and certain planets wear off into the dark of space, meaning certain audience members just walk off. Um, Because the picture, of course, where this is happening is the market square, and certain planets just disappears, but the certain of them also decide to stay. And the gravity of the showman it warps the time and the space, and the the warping of it it continues. And continuing the planet metaphor, the warping time and space is, of course, what large celestial bodies does according to Einstein's theory of relativity. It also points to the double meaning of gravity for gravity is the force pulling juggling balls towards the center of the earth but it is or an acrobat what keeps them allows uh, the three people standing on top of each other in a in a acrobatic display to um keep their balance is how reliable gravity is but it also means something of extreme or alarming importance like oh there's something is very serious oh there's a it's a grave situation the gravity of this situation made everybody pay very deep attention all these meanings of the word serves as guides towards the manner in which the showman radiates and connects with the audience like the sun in the center of a planetary system so to warp time and space, the showman must have the necessary gravity. So the grav- he can be playful, or he can be silly, but he needs to take the silliness seriously, and a play that he invites the audience into must be serious play. It's not frivolous and idiotic or meaningless or so. Anyone who thinks that play isn't serious haven't thought enough about it. So, grant- <laughs> granted... Um, two teams on a basketball field they are just playing basketball but to stop in the middle of the game when a game is at its most intense and say hey guys relax we're only playing it's just a game will not make you any friends so play games and showmanship is serious business that's why this word gravity the gravity of the showman warps time and space So it's, of course, then, it's both being pulled in like the sun, but it's also just the actual real showman standing there that they take what they do seriously um, is important, even if you're just waving a rubber chicken and blowing a duck whistle. The warping of time and space also describes the experience that the audience has as their attention is modulated into interest and they become fully engaged in the show which is to say that this new ontological or state of being, this new ontological phenomena of show comes into being. Like it, when the audience is fully involved in the show, they're involved in the process of the show and feel like they're participating in it, in what comes and what was before, and that they are there and they have a sort of almost an ownership of this uh, show where they feel. Annoyed If somebody comes on the outside and and, or a drunk walks into the show or if somebody comes and disturbs it, then they go, oh, this person is ruining my thing. They start to feel a certain ownership of it, which is great. And in that process, then this show, as the phenomena of show, emerges. We've shared interest in the shared attention between shared attention molds into and transforms into... Interest, and in that we have the showman and uh, audience experiencing and putting, coming into, their creating a show, which is a different state of being. And I believe that some of the results or signs of having achieved this state of interest, of being fully pulled into the performance. when that happens to us, it, it, we sort of forget about our surroundings and we lose track of time. So our sense of time and space is warped. Our focus narrows in on the showman. If we're, if I'm in the audience, it narrows in on the showman and what is happening right there in front of us. If you and me are watching a show together, that's sort of what happens. And as we get this sort of pinpoint of spatial focus, we also get a pinpoint of time as we're sort of pulled into the unfolding moment as the act happens. We are right here, right now, you and me here. This is reality right here. This person could fall off the ladder if they're standing on a ladder or whatever. All eyes are focused on the act and what's happening outside of the stage arena or the area of interest. This all just sort of vanishes as past and future becomes an all-encompassing present. You just don't think about it anymore caught in the moment the promise that the showman will squeeze through the racket recedes into the background and all that matters is what happens in the moment and all the pleasant feelings that it produces you just you want to be in it and you want it to continue and as i'm there oh I fall off the stage oh he gets back up oh he does this oh what is this you just the next each gag comes and each confetti throw and it all just you want to be in it and you want it to continue this is altered time and space. And this, is, um, this altered time and space is a fully human uh, experience. And we call it showtime. It's when one person is showing something to others. One person facing the other way. Or rolling around on the floor. Now, the manifesto calls this showtime. But as we shall see... Uh, like with so many things the ancient Greeks they got there ahead of us and named these two kinds of experience of time Um, and it won't surprise you that neither of those terms are showtime but when I heard um, discovered this uh, when I heard of Kronos and Kairos as two different kinds of time I thought well there it is there's the there's the Greeks again, with having described um, all this, they have thought about most things, and then they put these names on them. So the ancient Greeks had two different words to describe two different aspects of time, and they map really well onto our everyday time and the show time. So the Greek words for this was chronos and kairos. And in brief, chronos was quantitative and kairos was qualitative time and we'll look at that and so the difference between these two times is experiential it's how it feels to be in it because chronos measures time in seconds and minutes hours and days etc and this is the kind of time that springs to mind when when uh, somebody asks you what time it is or how long a movie lasts or whether you have time to help it measures quantity of time And English words like chronological, chronometer, and anachronism, they have their roots from Kronos. And also, lest we forget, Kronos was also the Greek titan or god of time and uh, a villain in the (laughs) Marvel Universe. So Kairos, on the other hand, is the kind of time that we experience as moments, as flows of time where our experience and subsequent memories expresses itself as one event a kind of whole or a unit or indeed as an experience like it the my tennis racket act then is one of those experiences when you're pulled into it and you're having a great time and you're laughing and you're groaning and all of this and then you come out at the other end of it uh you go from being in experiences and experiencing Kairos or Chaotic time to going over to Kronos. And Kairos is the kind of time that the sign in the zoo that I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that said uh, don't miss the experience. It's, uh, it's telling you to go be in this kind of time. Don't miss the experience. Be there. That's the Kairos time. I can be present somewhere between 3 and 4 o'clock, but I might still miss the experience. Kronos is about minutes, and Kairos is about moments. And that's a little digression, and for completion and for future usefulness, Kairos has a further sort of meaning, which is valuable to be aware of for performers as, you know, continuing this thing of naming complex processes because it helps us better grasp that process and giving it um, our ability to manip- manipulate those complex thoughts with giving our thinking greater scope. Because in addition uh, addition to um, this sort of experiential time, Kairos also expresses the concept that there is a right or apt time to do something and a right kind of response in this window of opportunity. So in the right time, there is a right response. There's a right time when the right response or right action or persuasive argument will make an important and fortuitous change. This is also a sort of meaning of kairos, as in saying the right thing at the right time or doing the right thing at the right time. So, I guess I was lucky it was the uh, right thing at the right time. We're using fighting as an example. Kronos is the clock time that passes during a battle, but within that time, there is an exact time when the armor of the enemy opens, just so revealing a certain weakness, and when this opening up op- This is when an opportunity to send an arrow into just that correct gap in the armor. So this is a Kairos moment in the fight. And in a more peaceful example, a performer might be dropping a ball whilst juggling. And it might so happen that the moment opens up an opportunity for just the right kind of kick, bringing the ball back into the pattern. And if this all happens, the perfect outcome in the form of an immediate standing ovation happens. So... The moment of drop, the moment of kick action and its execution, the right time and right action, is Kairos. In any moment, there is never only one possible action. There is always an organic interplay between opportunity and action, and the action of one juggler or warrior might not be the right action for any other. So it's right person, right action, right. It's just this nebulous thing. But by calling it Kairos, it's like those moments that we've, when you've done a thousand shows or a hundred shows, when you just said the right thing at the right time, and all of a sudden it just broke everything, broke the world. So I had that uh, not so long ago. I did a, a corporate event for a ice hockey team in. Um, in the zoo where I work during the summer and I did my sword swallowing act where I put the magically produce a cucumber and I'm generally ridiculous and then I put the cucumber into a uh a slot in my hat so it stands upright and I chop the bits of cucumber off with my sword and flick the little bit of cucumber out into the audience. And as I do that I all went and these guys were sitting on tables, a lot of the Guys with their women and partners and all those a men's teams, there' all these burly big guys sitting in the front, and I don't want to tip the glasses over because they have glasses standing on the tables they're having a dinner it's a dinner show, kind of thing, and um don't want to pour any wine on any beautiful white dresses that people were sitting all well, fancy and i so I say. As I chop these and bits of chunks of cucumber are coming flying through the air, if you just hit you in the head, then that's one thing, but if it falls and tips over people's bottles of drink or whatever, so I go, hey, ready to catch, and I get this sort of, I look at somebody, I flick it, and I flick it accurately enough to get it into the vicinity where they are to at least knock it away or catch it or feel like, give them the feeling that if it did fall on a glass, that maybe it was their fault. Anyway, so I do that, chop off a tiny little bit, and then I turn to the next one, and I chop it and i have uh, said because they all got um, drinks i said oh, if anyone's got a gin and tonic hold up and you get some cucumber cucumber into your cup so one of these guys leans forward and i've only been on stage for like less than a minute or so and i oh i don't know a, a short while and i chop the cucumber it flies out one of the guys holds his drink up and it goes right into the cup drink splashes everywhere the guy stands up and would like the Power of somebody who's just scored a goal in uh, ice hockey world championship. He's just like. Ugh. Uh, and the whole crowd goes completely off. And that, uh, I could have gone off then and not swallowed the sword because that, that was the peak. When when I just did that, the guy was, I was there with that, that guy when he chopped the cucumber and went in and I said the right things and he held up his glass and I chopped it just accurately enough so that I can saw on the video that I put on my story that they, like he moves it like, half an inch to the side and it goes into it and um, that was like this chaotic moment where you go wow I didn't get a standing ovation but uh, except from for him he stood up and did all that came forward and got had to get two high fives and I threw confetti on him and all that and it just it brought the house down and I didn't manage to top it with the sword swallowing or anything I didn't manage to top it until I came back on later on and did the rackets tennis rackets later on that night but that was like this sort of chaotic moment where i said just the right things to make him lift his glass and then all like all all everything just came together it felt like a chaotic moment but it's like it's very hard to make any specific and concrete advice about when such moments arrive or what to do if you spot one moment uh, because saying like oh you should always say the right thing at the right moment this is about as useful as not saying anything at all. So I'm aware of the fact that it's almost impossible to say when the exact time is right and when the exactly the right thing to say is. And in a sense, the whole approach of this book and the whole approach of this uh, season, which we're now like in the 30th episode of um, piecing together this way of the showman, all of this is to kind of try to prepare you for moments like this. Rather than giving specific advice, I want you to have thought about the matters of showmanship to such a depth that when a moment opens up, whether it's in an interview or a stage situation, some of our thoughts and thinking from walking this metaphorical way together might help you align into a right response or say our thoughts, for I'm assuming that as you're reading, you're also thinking, or as you're listening to this, you're also thinking, because And I hope that you're questioning what I'm saying and applying it to yourself in your own thinking and scrutinizing whether it's useful for you to understand uh, your understanding of your craft or artistic work. And in this sort of dialogue that we then have where I'm now constantly speaking like a monologue, but hopefully that's triggering thoughts in you. And as these sort of things become... Uh, you become aware of them and you have thought them, then hopefully they will then be able to come out and being aware of this chaotic moment is to be looking for it and to like looking for these moments where something special happens and sometimes all that needs to be done is to just point out what's real in that moment. Um, Just point out if somebody smashes a glass and you go, whoop careful with the glass there like sometimes just pointing that out is very funny it becomes the right thing to do at the right time you know because any specific suggestive advice for any right action at for instance when you're dropping it you could say like oh well if you drop your juggling balls you could say this act is really picking up as you pick up your balls which is a lame joke and it might but it might be really good advice in a very specific situation but it would very likely not really be generalizable. Something you can say, but it's not going to be absolutely hilarious. But perhaps there is, having thought through that moment of dropping in, that making a joke about it, that that will be stored away in you as an approach to spotting a moment and a possible chaotic way through that moment. So this is why I've gone to the extents that I have to give a deep and expansive exploration of what showmanship is. And why I've pointed to the many connections and facets of this way of life, my thought being that you make the effort, if you make the effort to assimilate the way of the showman as a way to view what you do, who you are as a showman or a performer, and who an audience is, and what our right relationship to it all is, then you increase the chances that your spontaneous response, your first response that it fits into this opportune moment and you can't um, pre-plan every response to every possible opportune moment but being in a right relationship to something to yourself your role in the world and to others your audience and so forth increases the chances that when the chaotic moment arrives your natural response will be a chaotic one of integrity and authenticity Authenticity, which is, as we've talked about earlier, goes a long way towards making the audience lean in and become interested in you and what you're doing and what you have to say with your craft. So it's time to get back to time because the collapse of seconds and minutes into moments of duration is what gave rise to the saying, time flies when you're having fun. To have fun and enjoy oneself is intrinsic to the experience of entertainment which explains why time flies when we're being entertained. So when time and and the focus of our attention collapses, time ceases to be counted as vibrations of a quartz crystal or spring-loaded mechanical device and becomes a whole, a unit of experience Our experience shifts from Kronos to Kairos, a person who has just cycled into town where they encounter a street performer who then pulls the person into the fun of the show. That person has their experience of time transformed and forgets that they came into town solely to pick up some quick haberdasheries. Their existence is altered by the gravity of a showman and their focus shifts from haberdasheries to whether a random stranger facing the metopatol unicycle juggling power tools will manage to complete said goal. Kairos wins over Kronos. Yet, as the show concludes, Kairos recedes and a person checks the chronometer that they have on their wrist and are thus back in the Kronos time and soon enough they are back on their way to their favorite haberdashery (laughs) store. This will be a little excerpt from the manifesto here. In this warped state, the showman steals the crowd's time, but like a twisted alchemical Robin Hood, he he returns it refined as showtime. In this warped state, Where the gravity has been changed, the showman steals the crowd's time, but like a twisted alchemical Robin Hood, he returns it refined as showtime. Returns it refined like gold as showtime. The showman doesn't really steal your Kronos time as much as he serves as a refiner, transforming the Kronos time, the minutes and seconds, into Kairos time, into an experience the showman's alchemical process makes your minutes into moments and minutes come and go but moments at least the best ones are timeless the showman changes your game completely from a finite to an infinite game and um there we go with another exciting trip along the way of the showman and as always it is a pleasure to walk it with you um there's a couple of those quotes there from the illuminated showman's uh, manifesto um that's of course something that we return back to again and again in uh, in this here and, and in many ways there's um you could say that the uh, illuminated showman's manifesto is a um, um it, it it contains as a you can use it as this symbol or as a spoken symbol of word pictures that uh, contains most of the wisdom of this uh, huge project that we've had here in episode well, episode 30 and we probably have another four or five episodes more i think so let's just quickly go through the illuminated showman's manifesto before i leave you i am a showman First and foremost, it's a showman I am. The illuminated showman is someone who faces the other way. He faces the other way, who has walked with the crowd and then turned around to face the others. A showman cries for attention and has something to show when he gets it, for a showman shows man Man, revealing the pulsing meat of human experience and reminding us all of the inherent folly of all human endeavor. For when we laugh at the clown, we are laughing at ourselves. And when a showman performs on a market square, he creates a universe. Like the sun above, he attracts random bodies traveling through space, like planets they gather orderly around him. The gravity of the showman warps time, and it warps space. And in this warped state, he steals the crowd's time. But like a twisted alchemical Robin Hood, he returns it, refined, as showtime. One hundred percent artificial, and therefore completely human. I am a showman. First and foremost, it is a showman I am. And if you're a performer um, of any sex or gender or variety then um, uh, I hope some of these uh, ideas will be useful for you whether it is to expand your understanding of who you are everyone should be considering the question of knowing themselves, know thyselves, that's the Oracle of Delphi. It's said above the entrance in there, and this might help with that. Anyway, it's been a pleasure walking along with you. If you could take the time to write me a review on uh, iTunes, or um, tell somebody that you care about, another fellow performer, about this podcast, that would be much excellent. You can always uh, support me on uh, uh, buymeacoffee.com buymeacoffee.com uh, slash Captain Frodo and um, it would be excellent to get a virtual coffee from you if would a financial support to keep this uh, project going but all money aside and all what I ask of you aside I uh, have said all I need for what I have to give you today so with that said I just say to you, take care of yourself and uh, take care of those you love. And I hope to see you along the way.